Today we turn our attention to one of the most depressing passages in all of Scripture. It's actually considered by a lot of people to be uh, the most depressing chapter of Scripture in the entire Bible. And if you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, then you might say to yourself, wait a minute, I thought we just studied the two most depressing passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. Job, a rich, powerful, God-fearing man, is going along in life and everything is good for him. Loving family, uh, lots of possessions, lots of power, good health. And then all of a sudden, all of that stuff is taken from him. And even more concerning to Job is, is that his relationship with God seems to have been ripped away. I, I have some glue here. And, and, and it's like Job's life has just been glued to God's, like two pieces of paper together. And what's happened to Job in his mind is that God has ripped himself away from Job. And Job is left wondering, where did God go? Why has God done this to me? Going back to chapter 2 before we look at chapter 3 today, uh, let's just read the end of it because we didn't get to it last week. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Timonite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. I just want to point out before we, we look at the rest of this book that these are really good friends to Job. And when you read the next 30 chapters or so, 35-ish chapters, what, what you'll see from them does not make them seem like very good friends. It, it seems like they're bad friends, in fact. But the truth is, these are genuine and good friends who deeply care about Job. I mean, when they see him at a distance and they can't recognize him, they begin to weep aloud. And then coming into Job's presence, they sit down with him for seven days and they mourn with him. They also don't utter a single word, which I think is really difficult to do in anybody's presence, even the closest of friends. But it shows that they love him and they care about him. And so just uh, just for for our sake, as we move through this book, it's easy to judge these friends and say, wow, what a bunch of jerks. But the truth is they they honestly care about Job. And I think it will help us understand some things later to know that they really do love him and they want the best for him. And so the speeches that they give in the rest of the book are given because they do care about Job and they want to see the reversal of Job's fortunes. Now going back to chapter 3, or going to chapter 3, the very beginning, it says this, After Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth, he said... Now, before we read the words of Job, a couple of things about these first two verses are of interest. First of all, verse 2, in a lot of English translations, is the shortest verse in the entire Bible, even shorter than the famous, he wept, of Jesus. Now, it's like by two letters or something, but, but I just want to tell you this because we're about to uh, read one of the most depressing things in all the Bible, so I thought I'd give you just a little bit of intellectual knowledge that you can use as trivia down the line. Uh, what is the shortest verse in the entire Bible? Well, it's right here, Job 3, verse 2, in a lot of English translations. The other thing that you need to know about this is when it says that Job opened his mouth, it's a way of saying that Job poured out his feelings. 
In our language, we say that, right? We say things like, I poured out my heart to the person. What we mean is that that we're just a fountain of emotion and, and it just kind of springs forth in our words. These guys have been sitting there for seven days in utter silence, right? I mean, they're sitting there quiet and somebody has to speak. And Job is the first one to do that. And it's not like Job just starts saying, oh, here's the deal, guys. No, Job lets the feelings and the emotions and the thoughts and the hurts and the pains rush out of him like a waterfall. And so when we read this, and and as we'll see as we move forward, this is a passage of Scripture that is driven by pure emotion of a man who is struggling to align his theological beliefs with what he has experienced. So you need to know those two things, but uh, we turn to these words. There's a couple things that you need to know about the words that I'm about to read. First of all, they are extremely passionate. The poetic language that is used does not come forward in English at all. It really is just an impassioned speech. And that is seen throughout the entire, uh, the entire chapter. That this man, as I just said, is really just pouring out the feelings that are inside of him without thinking, without hesitating. The other thing you need to understand is that the grammar is absolutely terrible. It's one of the most difficult passages of Scripture I've ever studied, honestly. And it's because the grammar is so terrible. And you say, well, why is this interesting? That sounds like a bad thing. But here's the deal. I've already mentioned this in my first two sermons on the book of Job. The book of Job is one of the best written pieces of literature in the history of the world. We've talked about that. There are scholars and and, and people that know more about the English language, or excuse me, about language than I do, uh, that, that say Job is one of the best written books that is in existence in the history of our world. The way that the author uses different forms of language and uh, different types of rhetoric and weaves them together is absolutely incredible. And so it's weird that in one chapter... In the midst of a whole bunch of other chapters, the grammar all of a sudden goes south. And here's why I think it's important. I think that the author intentionally wrote this uh, from the perspective of a person who is sobbing and struggling. I think that he uses incomplete sentences, words that are very difficult to define. Uh, Let me give you one example. Uh, One of the words in here, a commentary said, it probably means tombs, but it might mean a joyful noise. And that's kind of how the whole chapter is. And so, so I believe that this author uses this very poor grammar, this very bad language, in order to show us the type of emotion that Job is struggling with. It is a man talking as if he is sobbing, as if he can't get the right words out, who is simply pouring out his emotional feelings, whether they come out in complete sentences or not. It's really, when you take it that way, a wonderful literary device, and it's brilliant in its own right. And so we see in Job 3 a brilliant piece of literature in itself because of the way in which it's written. And so with these things in mind, let me just turn to the words, Job chapter 3, verses 3 through 26. May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived, may that day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan may 
its morning stars become dark, may it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn, for it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins, with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery, and life to the bitter soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in, for sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, but only turmoil. You want to hear my first thought when I read this passage of Scripture? Job can't say that. I mean... A person who is a God-fearing, God-honoring, God-loving individual cannot say that. I mean, if you weren't paying attention, let me give you the point of the whole passage of Scripture. Job wishes he was dead. So I wish I was never conceived, but since I was conceived, I wish I wouldn't have been born. But since I was born, I wish that I would have been stillborn. But since I wasn't, I wish that I would have died sometime along the way, and I was currently in the grave. That's the entire point of the passage. Job wishes that he wasn't alive. Job wishes that he was dead. And here's the thing. I just don't feel like that's right for a God-fearing, God-honoring person to say. It kind of makes me cringe. And if one of you uttered that to me, I'd say, come on. Come on, that's not the right attitude to have. It gets worse when you look at the details. In verse 8, Job shows a desire for those who curse days to curse the days of his birth. He says that he wants those who have the ability to arouse Leviathan, which was an ancient and unknown dragon-like creature, to make the day that he was born cease to exist. Of course it's an impossibility, right? It's poetic. But what he says is what bothers me. He says that he wishes people who could call down curses would curse that day. The closest thing that we have to that in the Bible is of the story of a man named Balaam and some of the enemies of the Jews paid this man to curse the Israelites. Balaam was totally willing to do that until God stepped in and got in the way and didn't allow it. Second Peter 2.15 says this, They've left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. This is a pretty horrible thing to have said about you in the New Testament, right? I mean, this guy isn't one of the pillars of the Jewish faith. And what Job is doing is he is asking for people like this man to call down curses on the day of his birth. It seems a little bit magical. It seems a little bit dark. And my thought is, Job, you can't say things like that. You can't ask for people who call down curses to be a part of your life. That is unacceptable. Or how about verse 11? Job says, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? This is terrible. 
I mean, one of the worst things that people can experience in this world is the loss of their child. And Job says, I wish that would have happened to me. It's completely disrespectful of people who have lost a child. And it's completely disrespectful, disrespectful of his parents who, who, who had him and raised him from the time he was a child and apparently raised him up in a godly way because we see the type of life that he lives. The worst funeral I have ever been at, bar none, was, was a funeral of somebody who had lost their child because they were born too premature to survive outside of the womb. The sadness that, that came forth from the, from the parents just permeated everybody that was there, and it was absolutely crushing to be there and experience that type of pain. So when Job says, I wish that was me, I wish I would have died in that way, I say, Job, that's insensitive. You can't say that. It's disrespectful to parents who have lost children. It's disrespectful to your parents, and it's disrespectful to God. Because he is the one who has given you this life. Verse 17, he says something else that bothers me. Uh, Before I read it, you should understand that when Job lived, theologically, they didn't have a great understanding uh, of the afterlife. They had some ideas, and we see that through the book of Job. We'll see some more of that. He he believed that life went on forever uh, in some type of form. He believed that, that when he perished, it wouldn't just be sleep, but it would be some type of peaceful sleep, but that his soul would stay in existence. But he didn't understand it the way that we understand it when we read the New Testament. But he says this about death and Sheol, the place of death. He says, there the wicked cease from turmoil. But here's the problem with that. When I read the Bible, I see a totally different story. I see that when the wicked die, it gets worse for them. And so for Job to say, when the wicked die, they cease from their turmoil, they cease from having struggles, I say, Job, not only are you bothering me in the things you're saying, but now, now you're saying something that doesn't seem to theologically fit my perspective. To be honest, I don't really like it. I don't like what you are saying. In this chapter, there's other things that are bothersome. He uses some pretty graphic language that I I won't explain to you because we're keeping children in now. But he he uses pretty graphic uh, language that that I, I don't feel comfortable saying in front of children, right? And so you say, Job, you can't say that. He says all of these things that, that just bother me. It's like, Job, you can't wish that the day of your birth was cursed. You can't express these types of things. But here's the problem. When we get to the end of Job, and I don't want to give away too much, but I have to for this passage of Scripture to make sense. When we get to the end of Job, it's pretty clear that Job has remained faithful to God in everything that he has said. So I read this and I think this is not a faithful statement. And then I look at the end of the book and I say, well, God makes pretty clear that Job has remained faithful. How do these two things align? How does this work out? And here's where I think the answer is. Job chapter 3 is not a discourse meant for theological understanding. We can't surmise from this passage whether or not Leviathan dragons really existed. We can't surmise uh, a theological belief of, of what happens to the wicked when they die. We can't grasp anything about the afterlife. 
We can't determine our theological beliefs based on Job chapter 3 because it is not a theological chapter. It is instead a chapter that is born from heart of emotion. It is plain and simply a man crying out the things that are on his heart. He is expressing the bitterness of his soul. He's doing it in a graphic way, a vivid way, perhaps not a way that he would even agree with, but he is expressing his emotions. He's expressing what is inside of him as he wrestles with the question of why his present theology doesn't fit with his present experience. And here's what I think we learn from this. God isn't going to strike us down for the expressions of our emotion. In the modern-day Christian world, we seem to think that emotion is bad. The way that we want Christians to deal with emotion is like this. Okay, you suffered something horrible. You can have a couple days to grieve that, and then you need to go on with your life and make good things happen, pretending that it wasn't there. I mean, think about the way that we talk about bad stuff, right? God will make it better. Oh, you have to keep going forward. Come on, get back on the saddle, right? That's the modern Christian thinking even. And here's the problem. That stoic attitude doesn't come from Christian or Judeo beliefs. It is nowhere in the Bible that we should not be emotional. Instead, it comes from Stoic philosophy, go figure, right? They named it after them. And so in Christianity, we have taken on Stoic, non-Christian philosophy in the way that we approach grief. But when you look at the Bible, Job chapter 3, for example, you see that God is absolutely okay with our emotions. God is okay with us expressing things, even if they aren't perfectly theologically accurate as we express those emotions and wrestle with the things that are happening in our lives. Jesus became indignant when he saw God dishonored. Jesus wept in the presence of those who mourned the death of his friend Lazarus. And the word wept can actually be translated sobbed. Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem because of their disobedience when he looked out over them. And Jesus prayed and sweated blood on the night before he died on the cross. And I can tell you this, as we read that passage of scripture and that story, there was a lot of emotion involved. And so when you read Job 3, no, you can't grasp theology. You can't figure out where the wicked go when they die. You can't figure out if there was dragons, but you can figure this out. God is okay with the expression of your emotion. He's not going to look at you and say, I can't believe that you expressed emotion in a way that might have been a little bit wrong, a little bit harsh, a little bit too graphic. God is okay with that. If he's okay with these words of Job, then he's okay with the things that we say. That's pretty clear. But here's something else that we learn from Job. Despite it all, Job doesn't curse God. He doesn't curse God one time. He curses the day of his birth, and that doesn't feel right to us. But in the midst of it all, Job does not curse God one time. He doesn't turn his back on God. He doesn't change the way that he desires to live for God. He continues to maintain his holiness and his rightness in the way in which he lives his life. We live in a world that tells us that we must base our decisions, our words, the things we do on our feelings. But if we learn from Job, we learn that it's okay to express our emotion. But in the midst of that, we must maintain our integrity. We must keep living for God. Just because it feels easy to do something doesn't mean it's right to do something. 
And just because it's hard to do something doesn't mean that it's not the right thing to do. You see, we go through this whole, this whole thing, this whole book, and you'll see Job expressing emotion and expressing his difficulties with God, but the whole time he continues to say, I will live for God no matter what God does to me. He looks up and says, God, I don't agree with what you're doing, but I will continue to live a life of holiness because you are God and I am man. Man, I think we can learn so much from that. I think even, even the strongest Christians give into that mentality today and we say, oh, it's just too hard. It's too much of a struggle. And so we just give up living the way that God has asked us to live. But Job shows us. In the midst of maybe the most difficult period anybody's ever faced to not turn their back on God, he shows us that we must live for God no matter how difficult it becomes. Further, when reflecting on this passage, we'd be amiss not to mention suicide. And I'm, I'm going to read this because when you talk about suicide, you want to get your words right. And, and so these are my words, but I'm going to read them. Job sounds suicidal. This is something that many have dealt with, the feeling that they would be better off dead than alive. Far too many act on this. Over one million people die through suicide every year. And it is estimated to be the 13th leading cause of death worldwide and the 6th leading cause of death in the United States. This is tragic. And today as we examine Job 3, we need to pay attention to the fact that Job doesn't entertain the idea, at least in his words, of taking his own life. Suicide was known to the ancient world, but Job refuses to allow this to be the way out, despite believing that death would be easier. He has experienced one of the greatest personal tragedies the world has ever known, but he maintains the belief that in this passage that while life and prosperity are a gift from God, Death also must come from God. And here's the important thing for people to hear that have suicidal thoughts and feelings. In the end, Job is wildly blessed in this life, and I trust the next. Job doesn't think his life will ever get better, ever. But in the end, it does. Suicide is a long-term solution to a short-term problem, and we must learn from Job. Trust God with your life when it is good and when it is bad. It's a big deal. A lot of people have dealt with that. And I think we learned a great deal from Job on that topic. Before we close, let me give you one final thought on this section. For Job, the greatest hope he had in the midst of this great struggle was death. And this is fascinating to me because, because Job doesn't really have a great understanding of the afterlife, as I've just said. In verses 13 through 19, Job describes the place of the dead as a place when all people will be equalized through the removal of struggle. But for us who live today and can read the New Testament, we see a much greater picture of what the afterlife can be. You see, we read in the New Testament this story about God and how God loved people so much that he sent his son whose name was Jesus. And Jesus lived on this earth for 30 years. And after 30 years, he gave his life. He willingly died so that people could accept that gift and live for him. And and out of that, they could receive eternal life. And when the Bible describes eternal life, it isn't just describing in the way of Job, somewhere where we kind of go to sleep with a little bit of consciousness, but but there's nothing exciting going on. It describes it as a place of perfect peace, perfect harmony, perfection in general. And not only that, but it describes it as a place of pure excitement and pure joy and pure fun. 
You see, those of us who live in New Testament times don't just go, hey, Sheol would be a nice place of peace. But we can look towards heaven someday if we give our lives to Jesus. And and we can recognize that it will be beyond anything we have ever experienced on this planet. We can look to heaven and we can say, man, when I get there, it is going to be absolutely fantastic, absolutely wonderful, absolutely perfect. And so all the more. I believe when we know that story of God's love for us and how much he wanted to give us in the afterlife, all the more when we know that story, we should be people who find hope in the afterlife when we face great struggles here on this earth. Job looked to death, even though he hardly knew anything about it, as the way out from the greatest personal tragedy that maybe has ever happened in our world. And for those of us who struggle and call ourselves Christians, we must too remember that the afterlife is where we truly find hope. If we try to find hope here on this earth for the struggles that we face, no matter what they may be, then we are not going to find hope that is any good for us. Because the Bible makes clear that the world will always have struggles and always have pain and always have difficulty, but someday... If we give our lives to Jesus, then we can have perfection without all of that struggle and all of that pain, without all of that hurt. And so for some of you, that means you need to give your lives to Jesus. It simply means that you need to accept that gift and say, Jesus, I I believe that you gave your life so that I could have that. and, And I want that because this life is not that good. And I want something to look forward to that is better than what we experience here. But for others of you, you're in the midst of struggles. You're in the midst of hurt. You're in the midst of pain. And what I offer to you is is simply this. Someday, someday when God chooses, you will be freed from all of that. And so don't fix your eyes on the struggles, but fix your eyes on the hope that will come someday when Jesus returns or we leave here. Because that's really the only hope that we have as human beings is the hope that we have for eternity because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Will you pray with me? Father, some of us could express, all of us, God, could express the words that Job expresses in this chapter at some point in life, God. Every one of us have been, I believe, God, in moments where it just would have been easier if we were no longer living. But Lord, I pray for each of us, especially those who are going through things like that right now, that they would hold on to you, God. That they would know that that your timing is perfect, God. That they would know that your love is perfect. And and no matter what we struggle with here, God, we would remember that, that, God, you are in control. Lord, that's what you say at the end of this book in such a powerful and profound way. I'm in control. And I pray we would cling that hope and that fact, remembering that we don't have infinite knowledge as you do, God. Lord, I pray for for people who are struggling right now, God, and I pray that they would fix their eyes on you and the hope that you provide, God, the hope of eternity that we will have with you, God, in heaven. I pray, God, that, that they would be able to find joy in their circumstances, not because the circumstances will get better in some magical way, God, but because... Because someday our circumstances will be perfect if we give our lives to you. 
God, I know there's struggling people in our congregation, and as we go through the book of Job, it's tough on them, God. But God, I pray that they would find hope in this, that they can express their emotion, and you're okay with that. And I pray that they would find hope in the fact that someday, God, if they give their lives to you, they will experience an eternity of perfection, God. And Father, I finally ask for people who struggle with with suicidal thoughts, God, who Satan just impresses that thought you'd be better off dead upon on a consistent basis or maybe even just a one-time basis. I pray, God, that they would find hope in you, Lord, knowing that, that, God, our lives are a gift. Death should ultimately come from you if it's going to come, God, but that you have a greater plan than any of us can see. I pray that they would know, God, from the book of Job, Lord, that that God, while it may seem that, that life will never, ever, ever get better, God, that someday it will. God, someday things will turn around. And I just pray that, God, you would lower the amount of suicides in our country and in our world, and, and you would help people, God, to understand the greatness and the infinite wisdom that you have, Lord. We love you, God. For those of us who believe in the sacrifice that you made, And the hope that we have in heaven, God, just want to say thank you, Lord, that we have so much to look forward to. We pray these things in your name. Amen.